I heard a rumor that uh, some people in our church, like a, in independent pockets, um, have decided to start memorizing the Sermon on the Mount, which is awesome. I think that that is um, such a cool thing to do, uh, and hopefully you'll get it done before we're done with this series. Uh, this series is estimated to run about six weeks. We're in our second week today, and so good luck with that. Uh, last week, we looked at the Sermon on the Mount, and it was Jesus uh, opening up in, in this sermon and saying, uh, blessed are those who are, and then he names uh, all these different uh, dispositions of the heart. They're poor in spirit. They're, they mourn. Um, they, uh, they're hungry and thirsty for righteousness. They're persecuted for Jesus' sake, right? For righteousness' sake. And so um, there, uh, there are all these different blessings that Jesus states, and all of them are unexpected and, and surprising. They're very different from what the Pharisees were saying was blessed. The, the Pharisees would say that you're blessed if you're Jewish, male, rich, and healthy or clean. That's another way to put it. Um, and so when Jesus opens up with these words, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, blessed are those who mourn. They will be comforted. There was a, a whole shifting of paradigms for the, uh, for the, the peasantry they would hear that and say that I can be blessed too, even though I'm not the, the top of society. And for the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the other religious leaders of Israel, it was, uh, it was very demeaning because it said that everything that they were teaching was wrong. And Jesus is going to continue on this, uh, this correction, but it feels at times like a war path that he's on. That he is, uh, he is taking to task the, uh, uh, the idea that the religion of Judaism in his day, was so far off from what God wanted for his people that he has to come in and say that that's a false kingdom, that's a false teaching, that's a false path, and it leads to destruction. So this whole sermon that he's giving in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is going to be Jesus versus the religion of his day, uh, a religion that's based on, uh, on works righteousness, on, uh, on merit-based salvation, on, on you earning your way to get to God. Which is why Jesus' uh, message, if you, very, uh, if you uh, boil it down and take a very simplified version of it, is repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Or repent and believe is uh, another way you could put it. Repent and believe, which are two sides of the, of the same thing. Repent means change your mind. Believe means put your trust in this. And... Uh, He's calling sinners everywhere to do this, and, uh, and he's, uh, he's astonishing the crowds because when, he, when he's giving this message, he's speaking like one who has authority. And we're going to take a look at that now. See, because when Jesus is going around saying, um, uh, these people are the, the really blessed, the ones that you thought were blessed, that's, that's just the system saying that. That's just the world telling you that. But I tell you, this is who's really blessed. Now it makes everyone go, wait a minute, but what about all these laws and rules and rituals and sacrifices and sacraments and all that stuff that the, the leadership told us to do? What about the whole system that the, the religious leadership in Israel told us was the way to get to God? Right? This is how you get blessed. This is how you, how you get into God's good side and his favor. Right? Is, is, is everything from the law, like, is that all obsolete? Are you doing away with the law? And, uh, and Jesus has to address that because he's not going to try to abolish the law 
he's, he's going to correct their understanding of it. In fact, um, the very last verse of this chapter, I'll just, spoiler alert, it's um, verse 48 of chapter 5. It says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Right? It's not you have to be as good as the Pharisees. You have to be more righteous than them. It's not you have to be as good as the people in your church. You have to be a little bit more righteous than the regular people at your church. It's not that. It's you, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So he's certainly not trying to get rid of the law. He's not trying to get rid of the standard of holiness. He's not trying to get rid of the, uh, the understanding of righteousness. He's not saying any, everyone just do what you want. He's saying there is such thing as righteousness. There is such thing as perfection, and you need to be that. And so let me establish for you what that is. So that's going to be his argument here, right? Um, we'll start in chapter 5, verse 17, and then uh, we'll see how far we can go. Uh, verse 17, it says, uh, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, uh, watch what, uh, what Jesus is doing here, right? He's saying that uh, he's, not, he's not trying to abolish the law. He's going to fulfill it, right? That's a, that's a big deal. He's saying, the law that you think I'm getting rid of, no, 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 that's not it. I'm actually going to do everything that the law requires, and I'm going to bring it to, it, uh, to its fullness. Now, let's be specific about the law, okay? Because when we talk about law, what are we talking about? We're not talking about the, the law in the United States. We're not talking about, uh, you know, about laws that are specific to, uh, to cultures. We're talking about a law that's specific only to Judaism, to God's covenant people, to the people of Israel. Uh, when the Jews used the term law in Jesus' time, uh, they could have meant one of four different things. They could have meant the Ten Commandments, or they could have meant the, uh, the Pentateuch, the books of Moses, the first five books of the Old Testament. They could have meant that. Or they could have meant the whole Old Testament, those are your three options so far, right? You, you can have the Ten Commandments, the Pentateuch, or the whole Old Testament. Um, but the most common use of uh, the term law was, uh, was to refer to this oral scribal tradition that they, uh, that they received from various rabbis. It's, it's their Jewish traditions, right? The, uh, Ju- the Jewish uh, rabbis would write these commentaries, and they would write these, these different applications and sermons and, and notes and things, uh, based on the scriptures. And so they would, uh, they would produce those and say, here, this is what the law means. It's their interpretation of the law and their recommendations on how to live and that kind of stuff. And that became also referred to as the law. Uh, it, it's human nature. We, we construct laws and rules to isolate our behavior, you know, and, uh, and we think that by doing that, we are addressing the heart. Uh, here's here's kind of like uh, a few examples of uh, what the Old Testament uh, said you couldn't do, and then what the Jews would do with that, right? Um, the Old Testament said you couldn't work on the Sabbath. You couldn't work on the Sabbath, right? So they say, okay, you can't work on the Sabbath. That's the law. 
But what does that mean for us? How do I apply that? And they decided uh, on what, what counted as work and uh, whether or not that was allowed. And so they decided that, uh, that work meant carrying a burden. So you can't carry a burden on the Sabbath day. If you're not allowed to work on the Sabbath day, you're not allowed to carry a burden on the Sabbath day. But then you have to go, well, what's a burden? And they had to decide what, uh, they had to, to uh, define for everyone what was considered a burden. So let's display this. The scribal law put down that a burden is food equal to the weight of a dried fig, enough wine for mixing in a goblet, milk enough for one swallow, honey enough to put on a wound, oil enough to anoint a small member, water enough to moisten an eye salve, paper enough to write a customs house notice, ink enough to write two letters of the alphabet, read enough to make the pen, and so on. Right? That's how they, they uh, described what it was to, uh, to carry a burden. You know, how, how much weight could you pick up before it's considered a burden. Uh, they also decided to, to write uh, that uh, to write was work on the Sabbath, but writing had to be defined, right? Like, how much writing are you allowed to do? And so it says, uh, we'll display this, he who writes two letters of the alphabet with his right or left hand, whether of one kind or of two kinds, if they are written with different inks or in different languages, is guilty. Even if he should write two letters, from forgetfulness he is guilty. Meaning like if he didn't remember that he wrote a letter this morning and then wrote one later that afternoon, if it's from forgetfulness, he's guilty. Whether he has written them with ink or with paint, red chalk, vitriol, or anything that makes a, a permanent mark. Also, he that writes on two walls that form an angle or two tablets of his account books so that they can be read together is guilty. But... If anyone writes with dark fluid fruit juice or the dust of the road or in sand or anything which doesn't make a permanent mark, he is not guilty. If he writes one letter on the ground and one on the wall or two on the pages of a book so that they cannot be read together, he is not guilty. So what I've read to you, these are two different passages from, uh, from the scribal law, believe it or not. And, uh, you know, this is... This is how carefully they went to define what was work, how much you could carry, how much you could write. Um, they also said the healing was work. Uh, and what do you mean by healing? And they didn't mean magical healing. They meant uh, it, uh, like, you know, doing medicine, first aid, right? But uh, it's, it's work if it's, to, uh, if, if it's to, I guess, produce healing, but it's not work if you're just trying to prevent worsening. So if you uh, put a plain bandage on a wound, that's okay because you're trying to prevent it from getting worse. But if you put ointment on that bandage to help it heal faster, that was work. So they had a lot of different uh, hoops to, to go through and a lot, of, a lot of laws and stuff that they added on, you know, thou thousands of laws. And so uh, this all became their understanding of what was the law. When they say the law, that's what they would be thinking about. They wouldn't, just, they wouldn't be thinking about scripture. They'd be thinking about all these different rules and regulations that they made about scripture. 
you know, uh, inspired by scripture. They would, they would write all these different uh, rules and, and codes of behavior and stuff. Jesus wasn't here to abolish the law that God wrote. Um, he wasn't trying to remove the, the law and the prophets. You know, he wasn't trying to remove scripture. That's not at all what he was trying to do. Um, he, was, uh, he was absolutely for moral law and judicial law and ceremonial law for, uh, for the people of God. He was for those things, but he, he didn't come to abolish the law that God wrote. He came to abolish the law that the Jews wrote, the law that the Jews upheld as their law. And uh, what he says about God's law, he's like, I didn't come to abolish it. I came to fulfill it. I came to, to be everything that it requires someone to be. That means that uh, Jesus' blessings from last week that we looked at, the, the Beatitudes, um, they're, not, they're not new changes to Jerusalem, right? This is the true, uh, sorry, they're not new changes to Judaism. They're, this is the, the true Judaism. This is the, the true religion, the true faith, that the Jews were supposed to have. This is how they were supposed to understand everything. This is how God meant for it to work. And they had turned everything into all these external rules and regulations and codes of conduct. And they had uh, completely dismissed the the, uh, disposition of the heart. Jesus is not trying to start a new order. The plan of God in the New Testament is not a departure from the plan of God in the Old Testament. Uh, This is the way the Old Testament should have been pointing people. This is the pure form of what God's people should be. These blessings don't overthrow Judaism. They correct it. They bring it right back on track, right? It fulfills the Old Testament. It doesn't abolish it. So the Bible is not subtle about this either. Jesus fulfills the Old Testament, right? When he says, I came to fulfill uh, the Old Testament, I came to fulfill the law, when he says that, uh, he is, he's kind of letting us in on this little secret that the Old Testament is about him. And when he arrives on the earth, he's living out everything that the Old Testament is talking about. He is fulfilling all that stuff. So there are four other times in the New Testament where Jesus claimed to be the theme of the Old Testament, right? The whole Old Testament is about him. There are four other times that the New Testament will kind of tell us this. I'll show you them. Uh, Hebrews 10, verse 7, it says, uh, Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Right? Here's Jesus saying that uh, the, uh, the book is writing about him. That book would be the, the scriptures, the Old Testament. John 5.39, uh, it says, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Right? You think you'll find eternal life in the scriptures, and you don't even realize that the scriptures are talking about me. Jesus is, Jesus is the one saying that. Luke 24, verse 27, uh, it's, it, it says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Right? He's showing them all the scriptures, and he's saying, this is about me. The, verse 44 of that chapter, uh, Jesus says to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Right? All this stuff that talks about me, I have to fulfill it. That's why I'm here. Now, you go to the Old Testament, you find, the, uh, you find all these different things going on in the Old Testament that the book of Hebrews will tell us was a, a foreshadowing of Jesus. Like, there are all these little hints, 
All these little types is, is the theological term. These little hints and foreshadows and previews of what Jesus would ultimately be. Right? The Old Testament, you find the first high priest, Aaron, the brother of Moses. Right? Uh, Aaron was the first high priest, and he did a high priest job on a temporary uh, little scale there. And then when, when he died, a new high priest took over and stuff. So he was a high priest on a temporary scale. Jesus did Aaron's job on the eternal scale. He's the great high priest is what we call him, right? Aaron, uh, the first high priest, entered the earthly temple. Jesus, our great high priest, entered the heavenly temple. Aaron entered once a year. Jesus entered once for all. Aaron entered to pass by a, a veil. Jesus forever tore that veil. Aaron offered many sacrifices. Jesus offered one. Aaron offered the blood of bulls. Jesus offered the blood of the Son of God. Aaron was a priest for a lifetime. Jesus is a priest forever. Aaron was fallible. Jesus is perfect. Aaron was insufficient. Other priests came after him. Jesus was all-sufficient. No one else comes after him. You go to the Old Testament, you find things like the tabernacle where you have the bread and the light and the sacrifice and the veil and the cleansing and the incense and the mercy seat. And if you, if you just study each of those, Jesus was all of those. You go to the Old Testament, you find Levitical offerings, the atonement, dedication, peace, sin, fellowship. Jesus was all of those. You go to the Old Testament, you find the feasts like Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits of the dead, uh, pouring out the spirit, victory, trumpets, atonement, reunion. Jesus was all of those. Right? You go to the Old Testament, there are 39 books that give you glimpses of the coming salvation, which is Jesus. And Jesus says, all 39 of these books point to me. And if you put that to the test, here's what you find. We'll put it up on the slides. Genesis, Jesus is the seed of the woman. Exodus, Jesus is the Passover lamb. Leviticus, Jesus is the high priest. Numbers, Jesus is the pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. Deuteronomy, Jesus is the prophet like unto Moses. Joshua, Jesus is the captain of our salvation. Joshua, sorry, judges, Jesus is the judge and lawgiver. Ruth, Jesus is the kinsman redeemer. First and second Samuel, Jesus is the trusted prophet. First and second Kings and first and second Chronicles, Jesus is the king to reign. Ezra, Jesus is the faithful scribe. Nehemiah, Jesus is the rebuilder of the broken wall. Esther, Jesus is the Mordecai, the deliverer of the Jews. Uh, Job, Jesus is the ever living redeemer. Psalms, uh, Jesus is the Lord, it's our Lord and uh, our, our shepherd. Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, Jesus is the true wisdom. Song of Solomon, Jesus is the true lover and bridegroom. Isaiah, Jesus is the suffering servant of Yahweh. Uh, Jeremiah and Lamentations, Jesus is the weeping prophet. Ezekiel, Jesus is the vindication of God's holy name. Daniel, Jesus is one like a son of man who comes in the clouds. Hosea, Jesus is the eternal husband wed to the unfaithful bride. Joel, Jesus is the baptizer with the Holy Spirit. Amos, Jesus is the burden bearer. Obadiah, Jesus is the savior. Jonah, Jesus is the great foreign missionary. Micah, Jesus is the messenger with beautiful feet. Nahum, Jesus is the avenger. Habakkuk, Jesus is God's evangelist pleading for revival. Zephaniah, Jesus is the Lord mighty to save. Haggai, Jesus is the restorer of the lost heritage. Zechariah, Jesus is the fountain for cleansing from sin. Malachi, Jesus is the son of righteousness rising with healing in his wings. 
high priest, tabernacle, Levitical offering, holy feast, books of law, historical books, wisdom books, prophetic books, the whole Old Testament points to Jesus. Everything that the Old Testament was trying to say, every theme of the Old Testament, Jesus comes and he is the fulfillment of that. Jesus is the theme of the Old Testament. Every iota, every dot, every last word, it's all a divine historical reference to him. He fulfills all the Old Testament. He supplies all the New Testament. He doesn't abolish any of Scripture because all of Scripture is about him. When Jesus says he fulfills the Old Testament, that should, that should uh, have us sitting there thinking about that. It should knock us to the floor, have us going, how did God work that all out? This isn't some revolutionary guy who's going to overthrow all the old stuff. That was not his agenda, not on your life. He fulfilled it in every way, judicially, ceremonially, and morally, even prophetically. Jesus said he's here to fulfill the law because the law was made by God to endure till the end of time. Right? Not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Till everything's accomplished. There's, uh, there's an application to this. If, if, if the law is here to stay, then we, we should obey it. Right? We, we all better fulfill the law. Not just Jesus, but we should all fulfill the law. We should all be everything we can to be what the law tells us to be. Jesus is not going to uh, support only some of its commandments. You know, because we do that, right? You ever play that game where it's, it's like the, the big sins and the small sins? Right? Oh, I, I avoid the big sins. I don't do the big sins. I haven't, I haven't murdered anyone. I haven't done armed robbery or anything like that. I haven't done the big sins. But then the little sins, where you gossip about someone or you, you hate someone in your family, the little sins where like no one notices what you're doing, your browser history, you know, the little sins where like you feel like it's a victimless crime. And uh, if nobody asks you, then they'll never catch you. It's the little sins that we get away with, right? How we cut corners to save a buck. It's the little sins. We, we, we play that game. We try to fulfill most of the law or the big stuff in the law, but we don't try to fulfill all the law, right? We don't try to get down to, to every last jot, every, you know, every iota, every dot. We, we, we don't try to do that. We all agree on the big commandments. We selectively dismiss commands that we just don't agree with. Right? Everyone's for like, uh, the, the big commandments. And then when it comes down to like, how do I act toward my spouse? What do I do with my girlfriend? Or honesty in school? Or slander if I'm angry at someone? Right? Uh, then we, we kind of change what we think is really required of us and how important that is. If you have convictions about some laws but not others, you're, you're trusting in your own code of morality. You're not trusting in what God said is righteousness. The believer that, uh, that loves and trusts God wants to accomplish all his will, not pick and choose the stuff that he likes. Right? Jesus believed all of Scripture was binding on people. He didn't pick and choose portions. He endorsed all of it. So what Jesus describes here, what he's talking about in, in, in our passage in Matthew, I don't want to lose the plot here. Uh, what he's talking about, he's saying like you have to be more righteous than the Pharisees. Your righteousness has to exceed theirs, and they follow thousands of these rules. Now, I didn't come to abolish the law, but I did come to get, to get rid of these rules, because these rules are ridiculous. That's not righteousness. Your righteousness needs to be better than their righteousness. That's what Jesus is saying. 
And he's saying, like, you got to follow the law of God, all of them, even to the least. And, and, uh, and that's like this daunting task, right? The fact that he says you have to be perfect, that's what he's going to end at with, in this chapter, right? You have to be perfect. And, and I'm just thinking, like, follow all the laws. I can't even follow the speed limit, right? It's, it's, it's that difficult. I, I can't even come to a complete stop at a stop sign. Right, and uh, that's just the way that we are. We have to be. Uh, we have to kind of do things our way, and we, we we set a different standard. We keep moving the goalpost to wherever we're at, and saying we're within the boundaries. We have to be more righteous than the Pharisees, is what Jesus said, or we'll never get into heaven. That's that's a scary thing to say, right? Like, you have to be more well behaved. You have to be perfect, or you you don't even get into heaven. What could that mean? Well, what Jesus is saying, at least, you know, as a starting point, is don't act like the Pharisees. They are not good enough to get into heaven. And that is an outlandish thought, right? Like, they are not good enough. And everyone looked at the Pharisees and and saw how many rules they followed and said, wow, these guys have extreme discipline. They are so morally upright and so ceremonially orthodox, and they say, like, how can I be more righteous than that? And Jesus says, don't act like them. That's not righteousness. Well, then who should we act like? And Jesus already told you. Poor in spirit, mourn, meek, hunger and thirst for righteousness, merciful, pure in heart, peacemaker, persecuted for righteousness' sake. That's the kind of person that'll be in heaven. That's, that's the person to whom the kingdom of heaven belongs. Pharisees may have kept the law. They might have followed all these rules. But they entirely missed its purpose. Right? Even though they didn't break any of the rules, they, uh, they, didn't, they felt like they didn't break the law, they certainly didn't fulfill it. The Pharisees obeyed the law in the sense of their external actions. They did not murder they did not give false testimony. They did not steal. So they did all the stuff that you're not supposed to do. They observed all the forbiddances. But they didn't fulfill what the law was trying to give you, which is not uh, a list of things not to do, but it was a description of the kind of person you ought to be. Even if you don't testify falsely in court, that doesn't mean you're an honest person. The Pharisees obeyed the law, but they were not righteous. And this is a scary possibility for all of us. So Jesus gives us uh, these, uh, he gives multiple illustrations, six different illustrations uh, on how the rabbis and the Pharisees completely missed the point. And he'll kind of go through the rest of this chapter. He's giving these, uh, these uh, examples and he starts with the big sins, like murder and adultery, right? And this is from, straight up from the Ten Commandments, the law of Moses, all that stuff. In verse 21, he's like, uh, you heard that it was said, don't murder, but I'm telling you, like, you shouldn't even be angry hatefully toward your brother. Verse 27, he's like, you heard that it was said, don't commit adultery. And I'm telling you, don't even look at someone lustfully. Don't lust in your heart like that. So he starts with these big sins and everyone's like, yeah, yeah, of course, I get it. It's not just you shouldn't murder, but you shouldn't be hateful and all that kind of stuff. Okay, I I get that. Everyone's on board with that, right? And then he moves on to these these sins that that we kind of think are negotiable. He talks about divorce and lying. 
right? In uh, verse 31, he, he says, you think you just give it a certificate of divorce and it, it's all done and everything, but I'm telling you, unless your spouse breaks your vow to you by committing some kind of sexual infidelity to you, you, you remain married. And we go, wait a minute, wait a minute. What if, what if the spouse is really terrible? And then we ask, you know, what if, what if the spouse uh, abandoned you? They just, just left. Like then, are you supposed to consider yourself still married or, or are you free? Or, you know, and we start going like, well, I don't know. And then we, instead of looking to scripture to see what Jesus says about it, we just go, well, I think that. And then we fill it in with, with what we think is, should be the law. Right? When it comes to lying, we, we start figuring out what, you know, swearing and oaths and stuff like that. We start figuring out, well, I did or didn't say this. And especially in the United States of America, we have this lawyer culture, you know, uh, where uh, everything you say, the, just the way you phrased it and stuff, like, I, like it, there's plausible deniability. I, I didn't say that exactly. So Jesus starts with the big sins, murder and adultery. Then he moves on to these sins that we think are negotiable, you know, divorce and lying. And then he lands on these, these last two sins that we don't even think are bad, right? He talks about revenge and he talks about hating enemies, right? He's like, if someone strikes you on the right cheek, don't strike him back. Turn the other cheek because we think, oh, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, which is what the, the civil law said. But Jesus is saying, okay, fine. The civil law is one thing, right? There needs to be justice. But in your heart, there should not be hate. And if someone strikes you and, uh, and it's, a, it's a, like a personal insult, then, okay, then you're insulted. It's not a crime against you. So if he insults you, give him the other cheek. Let, let, him, let him vent a little bit more and he'll be fine. And th- those are things that we're like, well, that's weird. Because if someone disrespects me, if someone, if someone says something bad about me or about someone that I, I care about, then I need to step up and I need to, to prove myself. I need to you know, to, uh, like, I got to show them a display of strength so they don't do that again. You know, we have this weird way of just thinking revenge is okay. And Jesus even says, uh, you think you're supposed to hate your enemies, but I'm telling you, you love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Now, when do we do that? Right? Look at the way we, we talk about our politicians. Look at the way we, we talk about uh, people at work or at school that, that uh, we don't like. Look at the, the way we, we speak with a tone of, of hatred and condemnation. We're insulting, you know, we ridicule, we mock them, when, and we do it cowardly. We, they're not even around, and we, we, we do it when they're not here. And Jesus is like, you should be praying for them and loving them. How many people come home from work after their boss just gave them the, the worst, you know, kind of conversation, and you come home and just go, I love my boss, I need to pray for my boss. When does that happen? Verse 48 again. Just, just stare at it for a little bit. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And you've got to ask yourself, like, did Jesus fulfill the things that he was just talking about? He did not hate anyone he wasn't lustful. No, he, uh, he was honest, always honest. He wasn't vengeful. Even when people were murdering him, he was praying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. 
I don't know, each of those topics, all, all six of those examples that Jesus gave, they can all be their own, their own sermons, but don't miss the point, right? Get this. The way that Jesus talks about this, right? He's not, he's not going around saying, um, you have heard that Moses said, and he's not going around saying, you have heard the scripture said. He's not saying that. He's saying, um, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, and he's talking about how the rabbis would teach people. Um, and the reason why he's doing that uh, we're going to get into this, right? I'm, side point. I'm going to step over here for a sec, okay? Uh, centuries ago, when Israel had gone into captivity by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, took, took everyone, deported them out of the, uh, the nation of Israel, you know, that territory, uh, they remained out in, in another country for 70 years. And during that time, we learned from historians that uh, they lost the Hebrew language, Right, because that that's not what was going on for seventy years over there. Aramaic was the language being spoken over there, so people would have kids and then die off, and they would have kids and die. You know, and it, uh, if you're from an immigrant family, like you can understand how fast language can die off, right? My parents are from Korea, but I speak English. So uh, after seventy years, and you know, that's multiple generations, they had shorter lifespans than us and stuff. Uh, they lost Hebrew; they just had Aramaic. Jesus spoke in Aramaic, he taught in Aramaic, and of course, the New Testament's written down in Greek, but the people of that time, the Jews of that time, spoke Aramaic. They could also speak Greek, too. But uh, they lost Hebrew. The, the Jewish people, uh, they didn't speak Hebrew. And even today, for the most part, most Jews don't speak Hebrew, or they don't know Hebrew. Now it's like more like a written language, right? Um, and so what would happen is the rabbis, they would learn Hebrew and try to figure out how to translate things to stuff, and they would interpret it, and then, uh, and then they would come up and they would teach, and they're like, this is what the Hebrew says. And then no one could argue with them because they didn't know. There was very little accountability because there wasn't any education around them. People weren't literate, right? So the rabbis were the only ones that could actually read in the Hebrew, and they could come out and say whatever they want. So they could do whatever they want. That's, that's kind of how this entire system was built, right? Based on what the rabbis told them. And the, the regular people, they couldn't look at the scriptures, read it, and go, that's not what it says, right? They couldn't do that because they, they couldn't read. So embellishments, traditions, interpretations, deletions, additions, all of that was added, which became the Mishnah, you know, the codification of oral law, the Talmud, all of that other stuff, which padded the truth of God into obscurity. And so end of side note. Here's Jesus saying, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago by these rabbis, right? These rabbis would tell you all this stuff. And he'd say, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago. For a long time, the rabbis have been telling you this version. Then he goes, but I say to you, but I say to you, he sets himself up as the authority. He doesn't even say Moses says to you. And he doesn't say the prophets say to you. He says, but I say to you, and he goes, well, this is my word. And he speaks like he is the word of God. He sets himself up as the authority. He's saying that what he says is superior to what anyone else has to say. And that's going to upset a lot of people, like in chapter 7, verse 29. But how do you argue with the guy who can heal the sick? How do you argue with the guy who is casting out demons? Right? That establishes a certain modicum of credibility for such a man. How can you deny the fact that this man has authority that you and everyone you know does not have? He has power that you don't. He has divine power that you don't have. How do you deal with that? Either Jesus is crazy or he's unique. Right? He's either a megalomaniac or 
He is the Son of God, the King of the Jews. Well, it turns out Jesus is the divine king. He is the, the son of God, the king of the Jews. And he's deposing what rabbis taught, and he's explaining the one true meaning from God. It's his word. It, he's God. He knows what he meant, and he knows when someone else got it incomplete. He knows when someone else got it incorrect. So he's saying, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to abolish all this oral tradition and, and rabbinical teaching that you guys added on to it. Like, what is that? Get, get rid of it. The traditions taught by men, that's not at all what God wanted. Which is why Jesus will walk around on the Sabbath and he'll heal someone and then the Jews will be like, you're not allowed to heal. That co- that's counted as work according to our rabbinical traditions. And Jesus is like, are you, are you kidding me? Right? That's not what we meant by work. That's, that's not at all what, what work was supposed to mean in the scriptures. When God said it, when I said it, is the way that Jesus is thinking, is his word. Right? When I said it, I meant like, don't work because you're not a slave. You're allowed to take a day off just to worship. Don't, don't sit there and try to pursue after money and, per, and please your bosses and all that stuff. Just take a day off to worship because that's a sign of freedom for the children of God. So Jesus is complaining, to, uh, is, uh, is condemning, excuse me, he's condemning the, the rabbinical traditions and he's, uh, he's claiming divine authority, right? He's like, I, I'm in charge here. The, the, the word of God, this is what it means, and I know the, the actual meaning of it because, you know, Jesus is God, right? And his whole point, when he's talking about righteousness, he's like, you have to be more righteous than the, the Pharisees. You, you have to be perfect because your heavenly Father is perfect. And when he talks about righteousness, he's, he says, it's not about your external actions. You think it's about whether or not you murdered someone or uh, committed adultery with someone or whether or not you gave a certificate of divorce or not or whether or not you said a certain oath. or You know, he, 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 he uh, points out how you think that it's about the, the external things that people can write down, this is what he did. But what Jesus keeps targeting is it's not that I tell you. It's about like whether or not you hate someone, whether or not you have lust in your heart, whether or not you're, you're dishonest. If your yes doesn't really mean yes, right? It, it uh, comes down to your understanding of faithfulness, whether or not you hate your enemies versus love your enemies. And it's, uh, it, it's, it's all the condition of the heart, the disposition of the heart. And that's, that's a, 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 like, in, in some ways, it's very freeing because you don't have to memorize all these different rules that the rabbis had established. You don't have to memorize all the different codes of conduct. So in that sense, it's like, oh, that's very freeing. On the other hand, it's, it's extremely discouraging because in my heart, I will never be righteous. How do I not hate someone? How do I not lust after someone or something? How do I not uh, adopt the values of the world? Right? When you get to the heart, that, that's a whole different story. And think about this, like, you know, especially these days, like we vilify people for things that they've done, right? You, we see on, how many times are we seeing on the news? Um, someone in Hollywood, uh, you know, for some kind of sexual assault or harassment or something, and, and so now he's fired and, uh, and, and, you know, we go, oh, I, I won't watch any of his movies anymore or something like that. And we'll go, this is what he's done. Right, and then well, you watch something on the news, and it's like police officers, and uh, and how they they treated or mistreated one way. Or another, who I don't even know the stories. Right, it just something happened with the police officer and uh, and and someone who ended up dying. 
And the way that the, the news puts out the story, you know, one, one uh, news outlet says it this way, one says it another way, and then we go, we go well, this is what the, the person did, and so, and we vilify them. We hear about people being accused uh, of stuff on TV. We don't even know all the information and stuff, and we immediately start drawing all these conclusions and forming all these opinions, and we go, that's a villain. And in doing so, we also go, I am not like that. And so we speak with hate, and uh, we speak with, with, uh, with this kind of like, you know, this upset tone of like, how could this happen? How could this person act like that? And we, we say it with this downward direction to, to the, the words. We're saying like, I'm above this, and that person acted like a villain. And yet here's God, and he's like, I, I'm not looking at the actions. I'm looking at your heart. What, what would happen if God took all of your thoughts Put them all out, you know, in a courtroom. All your thoughts. And he said, every hateful thought is the same as a charge for murder. Every, uh, every lustful thought is the same as a charge for adultery. And if he laid them out, what would happen? How much better would we think we are than the guy on the TV? What would happen? And even if, if we were to think we were better, by how much better? It's like I only have 600 marks against me. He has 800. And each one is a capital punishment because the wages of sin is death. It gets ridiculous at that point. When Jesus talks about righteousness, it's this whole other rubric. It's not all these these rules that you followed, it has everything to do with what's going on in your heart. God is not sitting there just looking at the actions on paper. He's looking at the attitudes that motivated your actions. And it redefines everything. Right, Jesus didn't just redefine who we believe is blessed. Jesus redefined who we believe is righteous. And by consequence, who we believe is guilty. Ultimately, if you if you go with what Jesus is saying, he says you must be perfect. He doesn't say you have to have the least amount of things on your record. He says you must be perfect. How perfect? As your heavenly Father is perfect. And if you absorb that, then the only response you can give is I can't do that. Nobody's perfect. So where does that leave us? Because that, that's very defeating, isn't it? Jesus said, you have to be perfect. You have to have righteousness that's perfect. Or else you don't go into heaven. And we go, I'm not perfect. So I can't get into heaven. 
There's no way. And that leaves you poor in spirit, mourning over your sin, meek, hungering and thirsting for righteousness because you can't generate it yourself. This leaves us coming back saying, I don't have the solution. So I have to trust in Jesus. I got to tune my heart to his because mine is way off. And his response to those who find themselves poor in spirit, mourning, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, his response to those people is rejoice and be glad. Great is your reward. For yours is the kingdom of heaven. It's the most unexpected, it's the, the craziest, weirdest twist that he could give. And our, our question has to be how? My righteousness is insufficient. Because I could not fulfill the law. And Jesus' answer is, but I did. And that tells you that your entry into heaven will never be based on your righteousness. You must trust in him and he'll give you his. You could never fulfill the law, but Jesus did. He came to do what you couldn't. So place your trust in him and just him, and then yours is the kingdom of heaven. If you believe it, say amen. Let's pray. God, there's a haunting statement when you say that we must be perfect. And we pray, God, that it would be a constant reminder that we'll fall short. And that we must turn to you because only you fulfilled the law. Protect us, Lord, from, from that instinct to think we have to be perfect and so we're just going to try really hard. And if we do, somehow you owe us heaven or you owe us a good life or you owe us blessing. God, we pray that you would redefine in our minds what righteousness, what holiness, what godliness, what perfection really is. It's not just doing a bunch of stuff that people can see. It's having a heart that's tuned to your heart. Loving what you love, hating what you hate. And from the heart, letting that motivate our actions knowing that we'll fail, we come back to you, trusting in your righteousness because only you are worthy. Bless our church, Lord. Keep teaching them the amazing, mind-boggling, eye-opening truth of the Sermon on the Mount. Remind us again and again that Jesus came to undo all of our natural ways that we try to establish ways to get to God.
And he tells us again that he did it. He did it all. We pray all this for Christ's glory in his name. Amen.